Holy Spirit, come upon this place now. Fill us all to the point of overflowing so that we can not just uh, hear words that you've prepared for us, Lord, but, but um, react to them out of, um, out of uh, uh, being, having so much of you in us. We just want you, Jesus, and we want you to come. We want your presence here. I ask that you anoint my lips to speak your word and our ears and our hearts to hear, um, to hear them and be softened by them. And I ask God that as we leave this place, you empower us to change the world with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I am thrilled to be here uh, this morning. Partly I'm thrilled because it's always wonderful to be back at Church of the Ascension. And, um, and partly I'm thrilled because I love returning to uh, Pittsburgh, the greatest city in the world. <clears throat> and uh, this visit today is a particular joy to me and, and my wife because it's our first time back here since the remarkable events uh, that some of you refer to as the Arab Spring. And uh, I know that many of you were praying for us and you supported us in a number of ways during that, uh, and I thank you. In fact, my primary goal this morning is to bring thanks and gratitude to you from my family for um, living through that with us. Um, and I'll tell you, it was a really remarkable time for us to be in Tunisia as, as uh, we experienced a revolution. And it's really something to experience a revolution if you've uh, never done it before. I, I know what, um, uh, um, I know what uh, the tear gas smells like. Um, I, uh, I know what the sound of gunfire sounds like. Um, and I know how difficult it is to sleep with uh, helicopters overhead and um, a, a, a wife in labor simultaneously. And so we, it was really a, a remarkable time for us, beautiful because of our excitement for what was happening in the country, but uh, difficult because, you know, we were going through it as uh, about to ha give birth. So... Uh, we did give birth. We, we had a little child of the revolution, and um, he's here this morning. You can see him, but uh, all, all went well. We, we were able to get out uh, to the hospital um, in the midst of curfew, and, and I, you know, I could tell you stories for hours about uh, the, the, the Arab Spring and uh, what it might mean for the future and what we went through in Tunisia, but unfortunately, I don't have hours. Um, I would, though, just like to encourage you that if you want to hear more, um, put your name on this piece of paper in the back that I have there. There's some things that you can take as well. Um, the more names that we have, the more we can really keep you up to date. So please just give us information if you're, if you're interested. Um, so uh, I can't go on for hours telling you um, uh, about what happened in Tunisia during the revol revolution, but I do want to tell you at least one story that um, that happened during that time that I'm reminded of from today's uh, reading in Ephesians. I'm just going to read you reread you part of that from Ephesians two. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now the author of Ephesians here is speaking about this this wall of hostility, this dividing wall of hostility. He's referring to uh, Jews and Gentiles. That's the context that he's um, speaking about here. Um, And he's saying that that, uh, this used to be a big separation, but it's not anymore. That that this wall of hostility uh, between the two has come down. And it's not just that they can come together for a common purpose. He's saying more here. It's almost as though he's he's saying that, that Jesus himself is their peace. It's not just now they can be friends, but rather that Jesus himself is their peace. This new peace, this new uh, break in the dividing wall between the Gentiles and the Jews. Now, before I go here, I'm just going to encourage you with a little hermeneutic trick. And uh, if you've ever heard me preach, you've probably heard this before, Um, but I'm going to do it again. I want you to focus on the word Gentile, and I want you to think about it, and think about how many times you you hear the word Gentile or read the word Gentile in Scripture. Uh, now, this word, obviously, we mean, know that it means people who are not Jews. Um, <clears throat> although it's not so much, um, it, it doesn't in, in its context refer to non-Jewish people, but rather it refers in the plural all those other people groups, all those other nations. Which reminds me of another word I want you to notice when you're reading the Bible, and that is nations. When you read the word nations in the Bible, it is not referring to a modern-day nation-state. In fact, the idea of a modern-day nation-state is uh, relatively new. It's only a couple hundred years old. And there are, you know, 190 or so nations in the United Nations, but there are thousands and thousands of uniquely identifiable people groups. And that's what, anytime the Bible refers to Gentiles or nations, I want you to replace in your mind those words with something else. I want you to replace in your mind, anytime you see Gentile or nation, replace it with ethno-linguistic people group. (laughs) All right, I want to hear you say it. Uh, Ready? Uh, First me, then you. Ethno-linguistic people group. Okay, anytime you're reading the Bible and you see Gentile or nation, I want you to replace it in your mind with that because that's what it's talking about. Not that um, the gospel is for every single country, but rather the gospel is for every single ethno-linguistic people group. And we can't rest, we can't be satisfied until it has taken root in every one of these uniquely identified um, groups that there are thousands. The sociologists tell us there are some 22,000 in the world. So I digress. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to get back to where I was. And that was Ephesians 2, and Jesus is the peace between Jews and Gentiles. And it seems to suggest that among the things that was accomplished on the cross was that the walls of hostility between humans were brought down. And in this sense, Jesus himself is the embodiment of peace. Now, undoubtedly, this is among the greatest miracle when hostility between people can be mended by a peace that comes only from Jesus. And in Ephesians, it was talking about this uh, 
mending that happened between Jews and Gentiles. But more relevant to us might be hostilities today between Israelis and Palestinians. Or people in America on the opposite ends of uh, political spectrums who are living in an increasingly polarized society. Or perhaps hostility between blacks and whites. Or maybe the hostility between the Arab masses and the regimes that oppress them. But somehow where there is where there are walls between humans, Jesus can be the peace that breaks down those walls. But of course, any talk about Jesus embodying peace begs the question, what about when peace isn't possible? Or what about when peace, isn't, when peace is incompatible with other values of, in the kingdom of God, like justice or righteousness? <clears throat> Just before the, the revolution in Tunisia, just as things were starting to boil, uh, just as these uh, protests were starting to happen, and we really didn't have protests in that country. People were afraid before to protest. And just as things were starting to boil, I was in a meeting with some Christian workers, other people like myself, Westerners, who were living there. Um, and also at this meeting were some uh, Tunisian believers. These are Muslim background uh, believers relatively new followers of Jesus, and we were together in this meeting, and these Tunisian believers were saying things that I'd never heard Tunisians say before, like, like, I'm not afraid anymore, and I've got nothing to lose, and I don't care, I'm going to go out and protest, I don't care how much they beat me, I'll consider it a, 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 the bruise a badge of honor. I'm not afraid anymore, and we'd never heard this, this was shocking to us, because in pr prior to the revolution, people would speak about politics and they would lower their voice. Even when they were in their homes, they would, they would, go, they would do something like, uh, well, you know, the previous president. And, and they'd look around and just instinctively. They were that afraid, but now they were saying, we're not afraid anymore. And it was resulting in these protests that sometimes got violent and messy and bloody and the, the, the Western Christian workers in that room were saying, well, let's remember peace. Let's be peaceful. They were almost saying, let's not rock the boat. And um, there, was this, there was this disagreement about peace, this profound disagreement that emerged about peace and what really is peace. Now, I want to, to that end, I want to read to you something from the, um, the Gospel on the Mount, uh, the, sorry, the Sermon on the Mount. These are Jesus' words um, from Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. <clears throat> now, maybe on the surface, this sounds like Jesus is advocating a gospel 
of the pansy. Uh, the gospel of, the, of the, the person who's going to give in whenever things get hard. But actually, these are very harsh words of Jesus, although a bit cryptic. And they were revolutionary. And I submit that Jesus was a, re a rebel. He was a rebel who was advocating a rebellion against a, an oppressive foreign force that was, had invaded and, and had dominated and suppressed his people. And the people who were surrounding him and the people who, who listened to him daily, they were experiencing this um, on, on a very real um, level. And they knew what Jesus meant when he said things like when someone strikes you on the right cheek, give him the other one also. And it's become a cliche. We say, oh, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Jesus didn't say turn the other cheek. What Jesus said is when someone strikes you on the right cheek, give him the other one also. And there's a difference. Now, I want to demonstrate this difference. And I want to demonstrate it us today, but it certainly meant something to the people that were listening to Jesus. And because they knew that a backhanded slap was the slap of punishing inferiors. It was the slap of humiliation. It was how Roman soldiers would humiliate um, and demonstrate their dominance over people on the street. They wouldn't fight them. They wouldn't, get a, they wouldn't uh, start a brawl and, and hit them in the left cheek. They would give them a slap of humiliation, a backhand across the right cheek. And do not underestimate the power of a, of a slap of humiliation. In fact, you may know this, but the entire Arab Spring, which has changed uh, a significant part of our world in the last year and a half, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, but significantly changed it for sure, started with a slap of humiliation. And it started in Tunisia, in a small town in the interior, a young man who was trying to make a living and finding that there was no way to make a living was, was illegally selling vegetables from a cart. And what the risk that you run in the country that I live in when you illegally sell something 
uh, is that the police will come by and they will confiscate your goods. And day after day, uh, just barely making enough to, to survive himself and trying to earn money for his family, this young man is, is out there trying to sell vegetables in a cart and the police come by and they take his goods and they, they confiscate his cart. And he is devastated. He was devastated. He, he was at the, the end of his patience. He had nowhere else to go. He could not see any hope for the future. It wasn't merely about getting some more vegetables for tomorrow. He now had no cart. His livelihood, which he was barely eking out before, was robbed from him. And there were no opportunities from him. And so he went to these police who took his cart. And he protested. And he started screaming at them. And he started pro uh, um, uh, explaining his situation and complaining. And one of these police officers, who was a woman, slapped him. And that slap of humiliation was too much. It was too much. He then went to uh, uh, a public government building, set himself on fire, and it so enraged the people of the city that, they, that, the, that the government would let somebody come to this place, uh, in fact, cause them to come to this place, that they began to protest in this small interior town in Tunisia. And these protests and this story of this man who got slapped with a slap of humiliation spread to other small towns, and they began to protest. And within a matter of weeks, it spread to the capital, and there were tremendous protests in the capital until abruptly the, the uh, oppressive regime that ruled the country for 30 years was forced out. And it started with a slap of humiliation. And the people that were listening to Jesus, they knew what a slap of humiliation was. And Jesus said to them, when somebody slaps you on the right cheek, you give them your other one also. You deny them the power to humiliate you. You say to them, if you're going to hit me, you hit me the way I deserve to be hit. Do not take from me my dignity. And do not try to humiliate me. His, his next words were, when someone takes you to court for your tunic, give them your cloak also. Now this is a peculiar thing because why on earth would somebody take your tunic in court? Well, one of the most common ways for people to be uh, oppressed in first century Palestine was economic oppression. And the people listening to Jesus were experiencing this on a regular basis. And they knew what a court meant. They knew that there was somehow some economic usury was involved. And people were, who were poor were being taken advantage of. And sometimes you would ask for a loan. Uh, and the only thing that you could uh, put down as collateral was your tunic. And you know, it was, Ill, it was not permitted to take someone's coat. Because the coat doubled as a blanket at night, and it kept, kept people warm. It, it, it was what kept them alive sometimes. So you couldn't put your coat down as collateral, but you could put your tunic down as collateral. And to say that somebody's 
tunic is being taken by court would have been to the listeners of Jesus like referring to um, someone stealing an old elderly widow's life savings. That's the kind of uh, imagery that would have been affected with this. You are somebody who has very little. You're in a position where you're being taken advantage of and the very last thing that you have is being taken from you by people who practice economic usury. And Jesus was saying, do not tolerate this. Perhaps you can't cha- take, change them, uh, the situation, and perhaps you cannot uh, make it so that they don't take your tunic, but you can put a spotlight on the injustice. You give them your cloak also. And what happens when you give them your tunic and your cloak? You're naked. Naked in that culture is shameful. It is embarrassing. It's embarrassing not just to be naked. It's embarrassing to see naked. And Jesus is saying, you put a spotlight on injustice. You show them. You make them embarrassed about how much they're taking advantage of you. Embarrass them. Then Jesus says, if someone asks you to carry for a mile, carry it two miles. He was referring to something very specific here, unquestionably. Roman soldiers had the right to ask any random person on the street, as long as they were not a um, a Roman citizen, to carry their gear for a a certain distance uh, that was about a mile. But they were not, you were not obligated to carry more than a mile. It was only this one distance. And after that, the soldier was on his own or he had to find somebody else. And Jesus was talking to a group of people who probably had experienced this multiple times. They knew what it meant to carry a soldier's heavy pack for uh, a long mile. And they knew the humiliation and degradation that they felt when soldiers would put upon them this burden and treat them as mules. And so Jesus says, when a soldier asks you to carry his gear for a mile, don't. Carry it for two miles. You carry it for two miles because that's how you, the oppressed, can recover the initiative and assert your dignity. Because you're not doing what he tells you. You're doing something within the law, but you're doing what you uh, insist. You're asserting your dignity. You are taking over the initiative and you're throwing off the balance of power. It's creative if you think about it. The soldier then begins to think, what's going on here? Is this guy saying I'm weak? Or perhaps he's saying, oh my my gosh, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to get in trouble. He's only supposed to carry it one mile. And Jesus is saying, you can, if you're creative and if you're bold, throw off the balance of power. And by doing that, you can take back your dignity. Jesus was a rebel. He advocated a rebellion. Not a violent rebellion, but a peaceful one where people creatively fought for their dignity. And his words were subtle and they were cryptic because they were dangerous. But make no mistake about it, he was a rebel and the people surrounding him knew exactly what he was saying. He knew that armed resistance would be futile. They weren't going to win any battles with swords. He knew it was futile. But the oppressed could fight peacefully for justice and they could fight peacefully to take back their dignity. 
And Jesus' words throughout the scripture are peppered with these um, creative suggestions about how an oppressed people can get back their dignity and fight for justice. Now, you may or may not know that Martin Luther King did not actually win a Nobel Peace Prize for his work in civil rights. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in nonviolent civil disobedience. Largely his academic work in it and, and, and applying it in uh, real day-to-day -day life. But it was because of his work in nonviolent civil disobedience that he, um, that he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And Martin Luther King was a student of Gandhi from whom he got this idea of nonviolent civil disobedience. And Gandhi got it from Jesus. And it's likely that, uh, you know, this, the, these words of Jesus advocating a peaceful rebellion went unnoticed in the scripture for centuries or, or mostly unnoticed until Gandhi came along and then until Martin Luther King made them normative. And it is really remarkable that what happened subsequent to Martin Luther King was a world where you and I, our default position is nonviolent civil disobedience. When we want to protest something, that's what we do. When we want to react against an injustice, that's the first place that we go to. 30 or 40 years ago, that wasn't the case. It simply wasn't the case that people's first response was nonviolent and peaceful. It was new. It was an idea from Jesus that was largely overlooked, picked up by Gandhi, and taken to the rest of the world by Martin Luther King. But not the whole world. A few years ago, I asked this old, dear Arab friend of mine, I said, why is it that, uh, why is it that nonviolent civil disobedience has has become in most of the world the, the default way of dealing with injustice. But in the Arab world, they don't seem to know about it. Their, their first response isn't nonviolent civil disobedience. It's, it's uh, taking a hostage or setting off a bomb or kidnapping someone. Or, um, and I said, what? To my, this old Arab friend, I said, why is this? And he said, I don't know. We don't have that here. We just don't have it. But today they do. Today they do because of a young man that got slapped and humiliated. And for some reason, these words of Jesus that you can have a peaceful rebellion took root. And this is the significance of the Arab Spring. Not that uh, some Arab countries might be better or worse. Not that uh, democracy might stick or might not stick. The significance is that for the first time in the Arab world today, the default position is nonviolent civil disobedience. And somehow, miraculously, the words, these words of Jesus for a peaceful rebellion have taken root. That's the miracle of the Arab Spring. That's the significance of it. That th these words of Jesus, this message of Jesus, are now in a place where they didn't exist before. Hallelujah. And I'm confident that it's not going to stop there. That shortly we're going to see 
other words of Jesus take root. And I'm confident that just like they, these, this one started in Tunisia, that other movements will start in Tunisia. And these words of a peaceful rebellion aren't just for people who are under dictators, but they're for you and I. Because some of us here might experience ourselves or know someone who's experienced economic oppression, and Jesus' words to us are shine a spotlight on the injustice. And there are some of us here who may suffer right now in an abusive relationship, and Jesus' words are stand up and refuse to be humiliated. Or it may be that we, we see the weak being taken advantage of by the strong, and we can hear Jesus' words to seek a creative and peaceful way to throw off the balance of power and assert your dignity. Jesus is the embodiment of peace. And he is a rebel. And his words of uh, quiet, peaceful rebellion are being swept through the entire world today. And we need to complete them in our own lives. Amen.